I just got back from spending a week with our high school uh, youth group uh, at camp and then at the beach. And so anytime I go away and uh, have the chance to gain some perspective by spending some time around a bunch of 15, 16-year-olds and getting a chance to be part of a you know, youth retreat and do all that fun stuff, I actually gain some really good perspective on ministry here at Seven Hills Fellowship. Because um, regardless of what you may think, if you're 55, 60, 42, whatever, you may think that you don't need, um, you need sort of deep, meaty, sort of heavy, weighty stuff all the time. And in reality, um, the adults in this room need exactly the same things that 15 and 16-year-olds need, right? And that's the gospel. It's the proclamation of Jesus, of, of who he was and what he came to do. It's that same message of rest that Tim mentioned ago, uh, a moment ago. And uh, part of what happens when I go away is that um, I gain clarity on things even like preaching. And, uh, and one of the things that I sort of gained some clarity on this past week was that we have a tendency in church um, as pastors, we want to talk about heavy, deep, philosophical things. And sometimes we stray a little bit away from Jesus, right? You can stray away from Jesus and into the, the arena of moralism, right? You can quit talking about what Jesus has done for you. And you can sort of start framing everything in terms of your responsibility and what you can do for him, what you can do for the church. That's one way of straying from Jesus. But another way of straying from Jesus is to sort of start talking about big ideas and big philosophical things In both directions, you you sort of lose Jesus. And so what I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to bring us just back to Jesus, right? And so we're going to be looking uh, at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42 today. And uh, we're going to read that in a moment. But what you need to understand is that this book of John was written by John the Apostle. He was, um, as far as we know, the the only one of the 11 uh, remaining apostles who didn't die the death of a martyr. And so he actually was a pastor, and he was, had, you know, had the chance to be a pastor to real, regular, normal people uh, until he was probably in his 80s. Some historical sources say that he even lived to be about 90. And so this, this uh, story, this narrative, this gospel of John um, is written by a guy who was a pastor, but it was also written by someone who was an eyewitness of Jesus. And if you read the book of John, what you see is over and over and over again, what John wants, you to, wants to do is he wants to point you to Jesus, right? Here's the 80-year-old, 90-year-old guy. What's his, his core desire is to point all of his listeners, all of his readers back to Jesus, right? Not to what you can do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for you. Not to all these huge, massive philosophical ideas. Those are great, but to keep it simple and to talk about Jesus, right? The context of John chapter 1 is, is amazing, really. And the reason it's amazing is because it begins by saying this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so part of what John is doing is as he points his listeners and readers to Jesus, he also has this constant theme of basically saying, look, Jesus came in order to invite you into a relationship with God. Jesus came in order to invite you into a a relationship with him, to enable you to become children of God, right? To those who would believe in his name. Some of you in here this morning believe in his name and are children of God. Some of you in this room this morning maybe, maybe not so much believe in Jesus, and therefore maybe you're not children of God. But part of what I want you to hear today is that through the words of Jesus, through the words of John, and Lord willing, through my words as well, I want to offer an invitation to each of you into a new life with God. Let's take a moment and let's read the words of John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. 
They say this. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. It's the second time that he said this. So obviously, it's a major idea for John the Baptist. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. That's a sign that John was writing to some people who were not Jewish, right? Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bring us to Jesus. I pray that your spirit would be in this room this morning in an unmistakable fashion and that you would draw us to your son Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that uh, every single person in this room this morning would would have an encounter with you, the living God. I pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, um, over the course of the last six months, I've actually had the freedom to sort of delve back into my past a little bit in some very interesting ways. Not talking about counseling, not talking about psychology. I'm talking about going back and watching movies from the 80s and early 90s, all right? And uh, so we've, we've, I've made Krista, who my wife is somewhere in this room, I've made her watch some hilarious movies over the course of the last six months that harken back to that era, you know, 80s and 90s. And what I'm completely um, uh, undone by every time is the fact that all these movies had this great impact on me at the time. And I was like, oh, these are the greatest movies ever. And then when I watched them as a 42-year-old person, I'm like, those were terrible, right? They were horrible movies, right? 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, I mean, all that stuff, terrible. Anyway, and I'm not just talking about morally terrible, but just like aesthetically bad. Anyway, however, um, one of the movies that uh, sticks out in my mind um, is from 1990. And it actually came out when I was a senior in high school. It's called Pretty Woman. Don't, no, I'll tell you when to put it up, Sam. But, uh, but it's one of these terrible movies that actually had a big impact on a lot of people, believe it or not. In fact, it's the number one grossing romantic comedy of all time, okay? It's the number one grossing romantic comedy of all time. Pretty Woman, right? Richard Gere, Julia, what's her name? Yeah, Julia Roberts, thank you. I couldn't remember all of a sudden. Who's from Marietta, Georgia, by the way? And uh, anyway, but if you go back and watch it, it's... It's really not very good. It's not. In fact, what it is, is it's sort of a modernization, a modernization of, 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 a, of a play called Pygmalion, right? If you guys are familiar with that. But essentially, the story is this. There is a woman whose name is Vivian. And uh, Vivian is a, I'll phrase it this way, woman of the evening. And um, living on the West Coast somewhere. Richard Gere is a, is a, a high-powered, super wealthy businessman who's a little bit cutthroat. He buys struggling businesses and then he breaks them into little pieces and sells them off. And so by, by definition, what he does hurts a lot of people's lives. And so he's, he's a lonely guy. So he's out on the West Coast doing his business thing. He stops to ask someone for directions. It turns out that it's this woman, Vivian. And she ends up spending the next week with him, essentially. And over the course of that week, what ends up happening is that their business relationship sort of morphs over into a personal relationship. And it's, there's all these ups and these downs in this relationship with this you know, respectable businessman and this uh, woman of the night. Toward the end of the movie, 
uh, he realizes that he has feelings for her. And so he basically makes an offer to her. He says, he essentially says, hey, what if I kind of get you a condo and kind of put you up in it? And we sort of keep having this little relationship thing we have going on. And to which she responds, you know, that really isn't the fairy tale that I had envisioned. I don't want to be some sort of, you know, kept woman for you. And, uh, and then the movie ends on a much higher and deeper note where essentially uh, Richard Gere's character, Edward, does more than that. He invites her into a new life where she gets to leave all of that behind. And she gets to be not only a kept woman for him, but that she gets to be his wife. Now, we've got this scene we're going to watch here in a minute where he pulls up to her apartment in a white limo uh, like a knight on a white horse. And uh, he gives her flowers and he invites her into this new life. Let's watch it really quickly. Okay, there's, there's opera music playing. For some reason, it's not on the computer. He drives up in the white. I'm going to have to narrate. It's just going to have to happen. This happened like six months ago. All right, so Richard Gere waves at her, says, hey, what's up? And she says, what's up, man? Anyway, and she's excited, right, because it's not, you know, it's the fairy tale ending that she desired. Again, there's opera music from La Trattoria playing in the background, which is a, an opera they went to see. He's afraid of heights. He climbs up the ladder, brings her flowers. Even though he's afraid of heights, he makes his way up to his, um, you know, fairy tale princess. And as he's making his way up to her, she's undone emotionally. Again, the music is playing. It's super romantic. He's got the flowers in his mouth. The chauffeur thinks it's funny. Anyway, (laughs) he makes his way up to his princess, and he proclaims his undying love to her, and he invites her into a new life with him. Let's just stop it right there. All right. All right. So, yeah, we actually double-checked that, and it worked when we ran through it. I don't know. Anyway, the point is that what's happening in this, uh, this movie is that uh, Richard Gere, this character, he's inviting Vivian into a new life with him, you know, a new life where she doesn't have to do the type of work she was doing before, a new life where um, she will really be protected, right, and cared for and loved. And, and, uh, and just think about it for a second. Again, you missed out a little bit on it because the music wasn't playing. You couldn't hear the words. But, uh, but can you just imagine if he went to all that trouble, you know, and showed up in the, you know, the white limousine with the flowers in the roof, climbed up, and he invited her into this new life with him. And what if she said, nah, I'm good. You know, this kind of works for me, right? You know, I kind of like the freedom I've got. I get to meet new people. You know, I get to have new experiences, go new places. What if that's the way the movie would, would you know, would have ended? Like, we all would have been appalled. Like, are you kidding me? You just got invited into this new life by this, you know, this wonderful man who loves you and wants to give his life for you, right? You would have just been astounded. And yet that's what we see happening in Scripture over and over again, that Jesus invites people into a relationship with him, and they kind of go, no, I'm good with the way that I've been doing things. What, what if the disciples that we just read about in this passage, John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, what if they had just said, nah, we'll just stick with John, you know? They might have gotten beheaded like he did. But instead, what we see happening is that they say yes, and that they do indeed follow him into this new life that he invites them into. And this new life that he invites them into is also a new life that he invites us into as well. Let's look very quickly at some of these passages from John chapter 1. And what we see is that the disciples' new life begins with just a hint of who Jesus is, okay? And so this invitation into a new life begins with a hint about who Jesus is. Look at verses 35 and 36. 
The next day, John, again, this is John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God, right? And one of the things that we see in John, the book of John, over and over again, is we see again that he's trying to introduce his readers to Jesus in all these different ways. He talks about, uh, he talks about Jesus as the Word, right? We read about that in John chapter 1 a little while ago. He talks about Jesus as the true light. He talks about Jesus as the life. He talks about Jesus as water. And he talks about him as bread. He talks about him as a shepherd. And he's actually taking these things from ways that Jesus talked about himself. And so Jesus is basically inviting all these people into a relationship with him by giving them just a little bit of a hint about who he is and what he came to do. In this passage, the term that's used is the Lamb of God. And so for the readers who were Jewish, they would have heard this term Lamb of God, and it would have taken them all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. And Exodus chapter 12 is this amazing story of, uh, of this lamb having to die in order that the angel of death would pass over them, that they would be made acceptable to God. And this, this image of the Lamb of God has all sorts of different implications. It has an implication of the removal of sin. It has an implication of guilt being removed. It has an implication of the removal of punishment. But one of the symbols of the whole sacrificial system is this idea that the lamb is, the, is given to us to make us clean, to make us acceptable to God. Now, another way of saying that would be to make us beautiful. As a pastor, I've had the privilege to do many, many weddings over the last you know, 18 years. And uh, one of the common themes between every single wedding, whether it's a blue-collar wedding or a white-collar wedding, or an indoor wedding or an outdoor wedding or a summer wedding or a winter wedding, one of the common themes that that goes throughout all of these different weddings is that the groom is kind of second place, let's face it. I mean, you know, he typically wears something that looks just like his groomsmen are wearing, right? Like he's got a tux on, they've got tuxes on. You know, his hair is combed, their hair is combed. But all the attention, right? It's just true. It really is. That's all right. But all the attention is on the bride, right? And, what, and what's been going on in the life of this bride in the couple days that have been leading up to the wedding? You know, she's maybe gone to the tanning bed a couple times, so her skin is, you know, sort of a darkish color, kind of tan. You know, she's gone to the, to the beautician maybe to get her hair done. You know, maybe she went and got her nails done. You know, there's all this stuff that's gone into it. And then even the day of the wedding, you know, in, if you go back into the sort of the, where the guys are hanging out, the groom and his groomsmen are hanging out, you know, they're back there talking and, you know, there's some roughhousing going on. But if you make your way anywhere close to where the women are, there's usually a buzz. And the buzz isn't talking about sports. It's not telling stories from when you're in high school or college. But what it is, is there are usually four or five women back there and they are making the bride beautiful right? That's what they're doing. You know, they're fixing hair, they're, they're fluffing the dress, they're doing all of these things in order to make the wife beautiful. In fact, it's interesting, you know, if you've ever read uh, the book Wild at Heart or Captivating by um, John and Stacey Eldridge, one of the things that comes out of the book Captivating is this idea that a woman's core uh, sort of question is, am I beautiful? Am I beautiful? Now, that may or may not resonate with you women in the room. I don't know. That's, we can have that conversation later. Stacey Elders may or may not be right. I don't know. But what I do know is that what Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to do was to make us beautiful before his heavenly Father, right? To make us beautiful, to make us acceptable to him. And some of you in this room this morning need to hear that, right? Because I guarantee you that 85, 90% of you in this room this morning don't feel beautiful before your heavenly father. Some of you think that he's angry with you. 
Others of you feel like you can't come before God because you're so aware of your sinfulness. You're so aware of your brokenness. You're so aware of your uncleanliness, you know, but the new life of the Christian always begins with the good news that Jesus came to reunite us with God and to present us to him beautiful and without blemish. How many of you need to hear that today? How many of you need to to have a hint about who Jesus is so that you can enter in this relationship with him, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, makes you beautiful, makes you acceptable, makes you clean before God our Father. It's the, the very beginning of the gospel, and it was just a hint of who Jesus was and what he came to do to these disciples. The second thing that we see in this passage today is found in verse 37, and it's this. It's the disciples' new life begins with maybe a mini decision to follow Jesus. Look at verse 37. When the two disciples heard him, John the Baptist, that is, say this, they followed Jesus. Now, let me pause here for a second and say this. John the Baptist was a prophet in the same way that Isaiah was a prophet, in the same way that David, in some respects, was a prophet when he wrote the Psalms. But guess what? John the Baptist didn't really know who Jesus was. I mean, he knew he was the Messiah, but I don't think he knew that he was God in the flesh. I don't think he knew that God in the flesh had come in order to die on the cross. And so he knew a little bit, but he didn't know everything in the same way that neither Isaiah nor David understood exactly who Jesus was going to be. And I guarantee you, the two disciples who made this mini decision to follow Jesus, they definitely did not know who Jesus truly was or what he truly had come to do. And so it's doubtful that this was the moment that they trusted in Jesus as their Savior. It's almost certain that they didn't know that Jesus was going to be their Savior. The initial decision was just one decision for them among many in following Jesus. Does that make sense? It was just one decision. It was just a mini decision that set them on the path to following Jesus. Now, I, I can't remember if I told this story uh, in the last year or not, so I'm telling it again, but it's, it's worth it. Um, so uh, there, if you look around the room this morning, there are married people, right? And, uh, and there are people that are dating other people, whatever the case may be. But one of the things that I think each of these married people will tell you is that they probably met their husband and they met their wife. And, you know, they may or may not have been attracted to them at the time. They may or may not have liked them at the time. Doubtless, it is without a doubt that they didn't make a decision for that person to be their husband or wife at the moment. Same thing is true with me and, and my wife, Krista. You know, when we first met at Covenant College, I was a senior, she was a sophomore. And uh, the very first time that I made any kind of a decision in relationship to her, it was just to go up and talk to her and just to be nice. You know, and after that, there was another decision. And that other decision that I made was, uh, you know, to, to put up some signs on her birthday because she was a new student at the school. I remember even after those two things, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine named Chris Hitchcock, a guy that I played soccer with. And as I was talking to him, I was in the middle of the five-year plan. In other words, I had basically said, I don't want to date anybody for five years, which is awesome. It was absolutely ridiculous. It lasted like two months. Anyway, (laughs) and in order to try to enforce the five-year plan, I shaved my head and looked nasty. And uh, anyway... And so I had met Krista and had a couple conversations with her, found out that she had become a Christian through Young Life and had this amazing story. And she was really cool. She was an athlete and she was artistic and all these other things. And so I'm on the five-year plan, so she's off limits to me. I'm not even interested. And so I'm talking to my buddy Chris Hitchcock, and I was telling Chris, hey, I met this girl. You know, she's really sweet. She's an athlete. She plays basketball. She played soccer. She became a Christian through Young Life. She's awesome. You really should think about asking her out. Seriously, I was doing this. And as I was having this conversation with him, my, something clicked in my mind. And I thought, well, BP, if you think she's so great, maybe you should ask her out. And so it really was this interesting little mini decision for me 
to begin pursuing or following my wife. And so sure enough, I invited her out on a date. Of course she said yes. And, um, but the point is, I didn't know at that moment that she was going to be my wife, right? I, I wasn't standing uh, you know, up front in the church with her saying vows. It wasn't that decision, right? It wasn't the decision to uh, get down on one knee and to put a ring on her finger. It was just a mini decision to begin pursuing and following my wife. And the reason I use the example is this is because I think, practically speaking, our Christian walk is filled with many, many, lots of these many decisions to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? I think it's it's filled with them. In the same way that my married life today with Krista is filled with many decisions to continue pursuing her and to continue following her. And so some of you in this room today made a decision to follow Jesus when you were eight years old, maybe at Bible school. Maybe some of you made a decision to follow Jesus when you were at Young Life Camp and maybe you were 16 or 17. You know, maybe some of you in this room have met, never made a single decision about following Jesus. But what I want to do today is I just want to invite you to make a mini decision, right? I want to invite you to simply turn towards Jesus and make a mini decision to go, all right, maybe, maybe I'll begin investigating Jesus. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll take a step in following Jesus and finding out who he is and what he came to do and having an experience with Jesus. And here's why that's important is because some of you in this room haven't ever made that first step, ever. And so I would include you this morning. I'd say, make that first step to just just to take a step in the direction of Jesus. And for you, it might look like picking up a Bible and beginning to read through the book of John, right? Maybe Maybe that first step is finding a fellow believer and saying, hey, I know you're a Christian, tell me why. But for others of you in this room, you, maybe, maybe you made that decision to follow Jesus 42 years ago, right? And you've been a Christian, you are a believer, but the realities of life have sort of drawn you away from Jesus, right? Maybe raising kids and making lunches and going to work and soccer practice and all those things have functionally drawn you away from Jesus. And what I would invite those of you in this room this morning who are believers is I'd invite you to make a mini decision back to following Jesus, to take one step into turning back towards him and walking with him and following him and pursuing him. You know, it's funny, last night I was working on this sermon, I had written the sermon, it was kind of done on Thursday, and as I was going over it last night, it was probably 5.30, and I was reading through this passage and I was sort of praying about it a little bit, and I realized that I'd been guilty of the very same thing that I was getting ready to charge you guys with. And what I was guilty of was being far from Jesus, Right? Because I'm, I'm just telling you, as a pastor, I'm a dad, and I'm busy. I'm more busy running a church than I am following Jesus, right? That's one of the big temptations of a pastor. And so I literally put down the sermon, and I got up from the table where I was working, and I walked outside, and I just went for a, what I call a prayer walk. And, and on that walk, I basically had to confess to God and say, God, I have not been following you. I haven't been walking with you. I mean, yeah, I, I pray here, and I pray there, and I read my Bible here and there, but I haven't been pursuing Jesus, right? There's a big difference between running a church. There's a big difference between leading a discipleship group. There's a big difference between, you know, even reading the Bible and praying with your kids at night. There's a huge difference between that and following Jesus. And so what I would invite you to do this morning, regardless of who you are and where you are, I would invite you to make that initial decision either to follow Jesus or to make a mini decision to simply take a step and to pursue and to follow him this morning, whoever you are. Let's look back at verse 38. Verse 38 says this, the disciples' new life begins not only with a hint about who Jesus is, 
not only with a mini decision to follow Jesus, but also this new life begins with a question. It's a big question. Listen to verse 38. It says this, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? All right, let me ask it one more time in the words of Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Right? The scriptures are loaded with Jesus asking questions of people. And, and every single question is a sledgehammer, right? Every single question is a desire to get, you know, cut down through all of the extra stuff and get down to the heart of what it is that people want from him. So Jesus never asks a question without some sort of deeper intent. He's trying to get Andrew and John, presumably, those are the two that we think are following him, to search within themselves to find out what exactly it is that they want from him. And we know that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, everyone really wanted to follow him, right? We know that the Pharisees wanted to follow him until he offended them, and they were like, yeah, we're out on Jesus. We know the Sadducees wanted to follow him, right? They had some different religious views until Jesus offended them, right? Because they didn't, he, he wasn't going to give them what they wanted. We know the Herodians, this group of uh, Jews who were sort of teaming up with the Romans in order to get wealthy, we know that they were sort of wanted to, to, to kind of be involved with Jesus until he offended them. We know the Zealots wanted to follow Jesus until he offended them. And one by one, each of those groups turned on Jesus because what they wanted wasn't what he was offering, okay? What they wanted wasn't what he was offering. Does that make sense? And so here's the point. This is why it's important. So Jesus turns to presumably Andrew and John here, and he says, what do you want? And the reason he asked that is because it's almost definite that that what they actually wanted wasn't exactly what he was offering. It's almost definite uh, that whatever it is that is drawing you to Jesus in this room right now, my guess is that it's actually not what Jesus is actually offering. Does that make sense? He, he might be offering something totally different than what you think. He might be offering something totally different than what you're actually wanting him to give you. And so let me ask you this morning, and let me echo Jesus' question. Let me ask you this. What do you want from Jesus? Let me just let that sink in. What do you want from Jesus? Why are you here this morning? You know, this morning there may be 200, 250 people sitting in this room, and each of you is here for a reason, right? You didn't end up here by accident. You're here for a reason. And I would guess that most of you are actually here for pretty good reasons, right? You know, you know, maybe some of you would say, I want my kids to grow up in the church. That's a good reason. You know, maybe some of you would say, I want those kids to have a, you know, good moral friendships. That's a good reason. Some of you are here because you don't want to go to hell. That's a pretty good reason too, actually. Right? Some of you are here because you want God to empower you to overcome an addiction or some area of weakness in your life. That's a good reason. You know, they're all good reasons, but are they the best reason? Are, there, are, are those the right reason to follow Jesus? Again, what is it that you want? Why are you following Jesus? Do you want him to bless your job? Do you want him to bless your family? Why are you following Jesus? What do you want? And so the answer to the question is this. The answer is found in John 17, 3, which Bob preached just last week. And Jesus tells us what we should want. And what he says in John 17, 3, on the last night of his life, he's praying with the disciples. And in the midst of the high priestly prayer, what Jesus says is this. Now, this is eternal life, or this is life to the fullest. This is life that is truly life. In other words, what you should want is this, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus again says this, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so why are you here this morning? What do you want from Jesus? 
There's nothing wrong with all those things we listed out a little while ago. But at the end of the day, what Jesus wants for you to want is he wants you to want him. He wants you to want his father, right? He wants you to have Eden restored. And you know what happened in Eden is we got, we got cast out of God's presence. And what Jesus wants you to want is to be back in God's presence. And what we know from Scripture is that Jesus is the only way back to the Father. So what do you want today? Do you want something that Jesus offers, or do you want Jesus himself? Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that um, though you rightfully could have left us in darkness, uh, you chose to send your son Jesus to be a light, that we would not only know who we are, but that we would know who you are. And Father, we thank you that not only was Jesus a light, but he was a shepherd, and that Jesus, your son, came to shepherd us back into a relationship with you, our heavenly Father. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear the question of Jesus today as he asks what we want. And I pray that we would, in good conscience, um, be able to turn back to Jesus and turn to you, and that even before we mean it entirely, that, uh, that we would um, be able to say that we want you and that we want your son, Jesus. And so, Father, for those of us who want to want to be able to pray that, give us your spirit to pray it. Father, I pray that you would give us your spirit to mean it. And Father, we pray that we would do this again through your own power and for your own glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.